0: This is the Aspire Podcast. The Aspire Podcast is all about sharing the stories of those who have aspired into full time Christian ministry. As we share their stories, we hope to encourage, excite, and equip you to consider what it would mean to aspire towards ministry. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Aspire Podcast. I wanted to start off today's episode by saying a massive thank you to everyone who shared the podcast on the back of last week's episode. Last Saturday, we unexpectedly reached 23rd in the Apple Charts of Christianity podcast listened to in Australia, which was super humbling, especially to be so close to podcasts like John Mark Comer's Bridgetown Audio and Unbelievable by Premier Christian Radio. It's just nuts. Whilst there's a fair bit of fluctuation that occurs in these charts, it was still so exciting to see. So thank you so much if you reviewed or listened or shared our podcast. The next thing I'd like to briefly mention is that we're actually planning on releasing one episode a week on a Tuesday morning. So from here on in, we're going to release an episode every single week from a Tuesday until the end of the season. So note that down or subscribe so that you know when that podcast drops on a Tuesday. The final thing to mention is, as I said in our last episode, if you have any questions you'd like to get answered, we're doing a Q&A episode at the end of season one. So post your questions in the Aspire Podcast community Facebook page or you can email aspire1tim31podcast at gmail.com. That is aspire1tim31podcast at gmail.com. That said, here's our conversation with Dave Fell. Dave Fell is a chaplain to Norfolk Island, an island that is a bit over a thousand kilometres off the coast of northern New South Wales. Dave is married to Crystal and they have three beautiful children, Wendell, Marigold and Ernie. And when he's not at church, Dave enjoys watching the St George Illawarra Dragons, perhaps too passionately as a personal Manly fan myself, or swimming around with the kids in Emily Bay. Um, Dave also, many years ago, used to be my youth minister at St. Matt's in Manly. And so it's with a great pleasure that I welcome on Dave to the podcast. Welcome, Dave.
1: Thanks, Aaron. Good to be here. Bit of fun to talk across an ocean, 1,800 kilometers away. I am here on Norfolk Island. There you go. Slightly to the north and a lot to the east. Is that
0: right? Well, Dave, this podcast is all about um, exploring how people have aspired into ministry. So would you sort of take us back to when you first decided that you wanted to head into ministry? When was that? And how did it all begin? Uh,
1: Look, look, honestly, I was thinking about this um, earlier and thinking that the thought of ministry, I think God kind of put in front of me as a boy. Um, So my childhood was spent in Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea, and we went to a a Baptist church in um, Port Moresby called Barocco Baptist Church, and we'd see a lot of, uh, missionaries come in and out of that church on furlough or or just sort of uh, passing through the capital on the way up in and out of the highlands and stuff. So I think as a kid I'd seen a lot of missionaries doing their thing and um, our family would socialise with um, people doing translation work or um, going off into the New Guinea highlands and stuff like that so I think God kind of put ministry on the radar early and then and that kind of developed i remember um also i attended a christian high school southern shire christian school and just having again some return missionary teachers and teachers that would every now and again sort of up and leave they were teaching you one year and the next year you'd hear they'd gone off to more college or some other college um, and then also I, I kind of went to a go-ahead church down at Janali in the, in the Shire when we came back from PNG. And, uh, again, it was a bit of a sending church. So in my life, I had role models and I had, I had people in my life making that choice. So it was always an option. It was a live option for me for a long time, all through my teens, I think. Um, it was a live option. And so, when it got to the point where I was actually kind of, you know, as I said before, making moves and putting things in place, that was a couple of years into my young working life. But, um, but yeah, you know, it kind of wasn't a new thing. It was just, it was more like, okay, am I going to jump? Am I actually going to do this thing that ha- has been on the table as a possibility for, you know, a decade or, you know, more, um, you know, since I was a boy? Um, so, you know, as a, I was at Ginelli, I'd, I'd, I'd done a degree, I'd, I'd um, you know, I was in Bible studies and young adult Bible studies and things, and I was droning away in my gray suit, catching the train into the city, just start, you know, just starting. And, um, and, uh, I worked as a recruitment consultant actually. And, and, uh, if anyone knows that business is pretty cutthroat and, uh, I'd I'd had some ups and some downs and I was in a bit of a down and I was between gigs and uh, Al Le who's an EU old boy uh, was my Bible study leader that year. And he got in my ear, he'd got Mm. funding. Yeah. He got funding the year before and said, look, um, and this was going to be the first time Janelli Anglican had done MTS. And uh, Al got in my ear and said, what do you think? And and I thought, yeah, this is, this is the time to go. So um, we hit the go button on that. And, and with, all of the, with all of the things that go around MTS, it's, it's like this is, a, this is a trial and you can always pull out if it's not for you and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, the big sell was on. But I was a pretty – I was a soft target. I think God had softened me up.
0: When you say God had softened you up, you mentioned how sort of God had put this on your radar when you were a younger boy – and it was sort of always swirling around, what, what do you make of that? Was it, was it a sort of internal conviction that you sort of thought it was something you may want to do? I know some people are suspicious about the sort of calling language, but I sort of see some merit in it. I think, yeah, would you say you had sort of a bit of a, you felt like you had a bit of a, a, a leaning towards ministry, a bit of a calling, or, or you felt led in that way from a, an early age?
1: Uh, I'd talk more in terms of confirmation. Um, just confirming things that kind of confirmed mm. some ideas that I already had about going into ministry. So being a youth leader was a confirming thing. Like I really enjoyed it, and um, even in those first years of of working in the CBD, I'd be agitating to get out of the office and onto the train and home, back to church and back to. Like my life was church. I loved going to Bible study. I loved leading youth group, and so that's where I wanted to be. So that was confirmation for me that this is where I kind of wanted to centre my life. Um, and I was comparing the two, the two things, like droning away. That's what it felt like. I just, I could see this life ahead of me of just droning in a suit. <laughs> and I'm using that language deliberately. Um, or the more exciting. Um, life that I was enjoying of, of, um, doing talks at youth group and having a little boys' Bible study. And, you know, I can remember doing, um, Romans with a group of boys in year nine and ten from the Moore College PTC notes and just having a really good time with them. And, you know, we'd make, like we did with you, Aaron, um, we'd make a Bible study beverage. We'd put, um, some kind of milkshake. Mixed straight into a two-liter bottle and <laughs>
0: oh, and, uh, and just drink that
1: classic. <laughs> classic, and we just drink that down while we did Bible study. And you know, so
0: yeah, I remember that. I remember those days.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was my go-to. And uh, so it was just comparing, and so I don't know about calling, but I, I did. I had this sense that um, mm. I'll tell you a story as well. This this is, I think, probably instructive as to how I was thinking at that time, my um, now in-laws, so I was dating my wife, Crystal, at that time when I was making all these decisions. And they're not believers and and they were not broadly in favour of this direction. They just thought it was a bit foolish and, uh, well, a lot foolish. And um, there was some, you know, murmurings. I hadn't, you know, it's not like we had... Talk this out with them, but I, I understood broadly that they weren't in favour of these sorts of ideas. I remember um, sitting down with my mum, and um, and she said to me, and I, and what I expressed to mum was, I think ministry is really important, and but it but if I'm going to pursue this relationship with Crystal, maybe and with this sort of thing happening in the background, maybe what I need to do is. Um, Maybe my what God's calling me to do is to be a really keen uh, supporter of ministry in a parish, you know, a keen Bible study attender, mm-hmm. a keen giver, and someone who's always putting their hand up to help. And uh, But in my heart of hearts, I knew that if I took that option, I probably wouldn't end up being any of those things. Like you're either all in or, or I thought, I, I mean, I, I knew that, um the I suppose the comforts of suburbia would would possibly threaten those things. But my mother said to me, she said, Do you and I don't think it happens like this, and I don't think my mum thinks it happens like this. She said, Do you want to get to the end of your life and meet Jesus and have him say you didn't do it because you were scared of your future mother in law? And
0: uh <laughs> and like <laughs> And that was wow. enough. You know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: um Strong words from a, mm. a a beautiful Christian lady, uh, but that's what she said, and she put it to me, and and, and I thought it, it was just for me, and that was it. I was in, and I and and I I mentioned that this was a conversation I was in dialogue with Alacabio, and Mum said that, and I would have been on the phone or around at Al's place the next day to confirm that that I was in, um, because for me I, I just got to this point that if Jesus is the Lord of all creation and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Like if, if I had such a strong conviction about that, I needed to be, that needed to be what I was doing with life. Um, so, yeah, I don't know about calling, but conviction and confirmation I would talk about. Yeah, but I definitely had that conviction that if Jesus is who he says he is, this is where, this is sort of where I need to be.
0: So there was some there was some internal conviction, but also that confirmation and the opportunities before you, and you also the confirmation that you wanted to do that type of work. It was attractive in, in its essence, I really found it interesting what you mentioned there about Crystal and Crystal's family. I think that's really an interesting obstacle to explore because we really really want to explore obstacles like that on this podcast because some of us are dating wonderful people who. Um, their, their parents and their family aren't Christian, and so this idea of the other person, the being going to ministry, it's not particularly attractive. So, how did you overcome that with Crystal and well, probably not Crystal's much, but Crystal's parents and the family? How did you navigate that?
1: Yeah, with great difficulty. It was pretty intense um, in those days, but but I'll I'll skip to the end of the story and say that um, that now we have, we all have a great relationship. But I'll go back and tell you um, about some turbulent times um, to begin with. So this was all bubbling away, and then I made that decision to to do MTS. And MTS at Genially was pretty rudimentary. Um, I was on the classic fifteen thousand dollars a year when it was time to ask for Crystal's hand in marriage, and um, again, that wasn't a particularly impressive uh, future son-in-law um, to my to my in-laws. So they, they um. They they were not impressed, and I remember calling up um, Crystal's parents to ask for her hand in marriage, and, and they knew what was on because, you know, I was coming over for dinner without Crystal and all that sort of thing, and um, they first said no. Um, my father-in-law said, you know, no, and my mother-in-law, who I was talking to on the phone, said, look, um, and I'm forever grateful, she said, give me a week, and... Um, I said, okay, and that was a really hard conversation. I called back a week later. We made a date. Uh, I drove there, which is about a 20-minute drive, and I sang Sunday school songs all the way, songs that went all the way back to Barocco Baptist Church in Port Moresby. Be bold, be bold, for the Lord your God is with you. I was singing um, almost all, all the way from Ginelli to Cronulla. And we had this dinner, and um, and my, my now... Um, parents-in-law, my father-in-law said to me, I'd rather hear that you were going to be a taxi driver than a Christian minister. And I said, why? And he said, because I think ministers manipulate people and take their money. Um, so it was pretty intense. It was pretty brutal conversation. And, uh, and uh, he said, did look, that, this is not...
0: Yep. Did that shake your confidence that this is something that you wanted to do? Like... Did, were there times when you thought, you know, what maybe I should just be a taxi driver? <laughs> yeah, How did that rally you a bit?
1: <laughs> no. no, actually, actually, my mother's words uh, about uh, must have been ten months or a year before rallied me. Um, she she'd already put that idea in my head that I had to answer to Jesus on this one, and and kind of not to man. So I went with that attitude. Oh, I mean, I was shaking in my boots. Um, it was very. I grieved. I think. I, I think. I always thought I'd be like um, the fons, you know, with my in-laws, and I, I'd go into their house like I was the fons going into Mrs. Cunningham's house and saying, "Hey, Mrs. C," and um, and kind of being being universally loved. And so when that didn't happen, I think I grieved that. That was that was sad. And in that conversation, um, they said to me, "You know, this is not our plan for our daughter." and I said, well, what's the plan? And, and they said to marry a doctor or a lawyer, to own a boat and live on the waterfront. And, um, hey, I've got a kayak and I live in an island. It's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not too late to do a PhD, so <laughs> you never know.
2: Other than the sort of immediate, fairly pressing and what sounds like a fairly intense sort of reaction from your future in-laws, were there any other particular challenges or difficulties in sort of moving away from the recruitment consultancy into ministry?
1: No, really, that was the main one. I think at, at that time, uh, you know, I was in a good church. I think dropping the salary back to that $15,000 a year was was tough, but I understood that that was all part of the formation and part of the journey and, um you know, so I had a car loan at the time, and we had to deal with that. And um, you know, even 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 at that time, um, organising my finances to buy a, an engagement ring that was a challenge um, as an MTS um, trainee. Um, so perhaps perhaps some of those. Um, and then I think then I mean, I, I, I've got challenges. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I just, those two years, I did two years, um, at Janali before college, uh, and they were, they were broadly good years. Um, I think, they weren't particularly theologically sharp, you know, they were working it out and they were just kind of, um, mimicking New South Wales MTS, you know, they didn't really have a, a strong program. I remember Archie Pulos came out, um, because someone had kind of dobbed on us, and he sat Alcarvio down and I on a little pear chair in our study and, uh, and it was like we got busted for doing NTS off-grid and, um, and then Al was explaining and it it all went over my head, but he was explaining that we'd just been busted and now <laughs> we were being made to join the system. <laughs> well, I do remember the moment.
2: In terms of sort of ongoing formation which was preparing you into sort of a more full-time paid sort of um if you like commissioned or ordained role any sort of reflections on your two years of mts and then your time at bible college in terms of the things that formed you both theologically and then things that informed your ministry practice any sort of reflections on that stage and season of life yeah i'll, I'll
1: work backwards um i think So thinking about ministry practice, I think moving out of a a big church like Ginelli and doing a couple of um, student minister positions really um, set me up for um, for parish ministry. I mean, Ginelli was such a go-ahead church with oodles of youth leaders and young adults and um, social life, and we went from that to two little struggling single um, minister churches, and you just got a taste of... Um, I guess what it was to be an Anglican in Sydney, which um, perhaps I'd been protected from, or I had a, I, you know, I just thought every church was was like ours, and I imagine St. Matt's, Aaron, would be a bit the same. Um, you leave a, a church like St. Matt's, and you get out there and see the others, and you think, oh well, that um, they don't all have, you know, at St. Matt's it might be the budget or whatever it is uh, that they have. So, um, but in terms of it's
0: theological and you know, sunshine.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, so in that first year, um, in that first year, I, I mean, Al, Al was a very sort of, um, what's the word? Peripatetic teacher. He'd walk and talk and muse and, um, you, you know, he'd, he'd plunge a coffee and think out loud. And So, yeah, I mean, I always remember him talking about the atonement uh, while we were having strong coffees and challenging me on on these ideas. So um, it was a very sort of informal, conversational formation, um, and we, we it was just a it was just a Christian friendship for that first year of NTS. Um, and then in the second year, um, a guy called Brett Middleton, who's now the rector of um, of uh, St Luke's Miranda came aboard so he was the second MTSer, and things got a bit more structured, and we were set. You know, we, had, we were writing Bible studies, and we had set readings. But that first year, um, and that was right up my alley. I, I mean, I, I think back to Moore College, which is really a, a reading course, and, and I think um, the the things that I remember was my study group, um, trashing trash, things out. And, and I'm someone that if Moore College went to um, Have sort of little um, tutorial groups or something like that, as 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 you might have at university. Um, I think I would have appreciated those because you know I I, I'm an extrovert. I think out loud. I think I think as I speak. Um, So that first year, having that experience with Al uh, was formative, and he he would challenge. And I just think back to some of the conversations we'd have about leadership or theology, and just I can remember him just. Yeah, they were they were deliberate, although it didn't feel that way at the time. Uh, and then that second year, there was more. Um, we were following the curriculum by then, um, and then you know by '05. So that was 03, 04, and by '05, I was you know first year college. But really, um, really, I, I as I think about my theological formation, it's it's really only been in the six years here on the island where I've been the solo um, minister and preaching every week, um, that it's really kind of sharpened me up, I think, um, in in a way that I hadn't yet been. So, um, so again, you know, so the building blocks all the way through, but now I, I kind of feel like this last six years has been just as formative as the six before that and the six before that
2: what are some of the key elements of ministry that you are undertaking at the moment sort of in your chaplaincy role at norfolk island help give our listeners a little bit of idea of what does it sort of look like to be in ministry in the context of norfolk island if you can
1: yeah i think a lot of people think we're just having a nice holiday floating around in a holiday spot out in the pacific and it's a and they know they <laughs> that's right. They sense that it's a smallish church. And uh, and so they think how busy could it possibly be? But an island of two thousand people, and when you've got a job title like chaplain, um so I, I, I I'm expected to know everyone's name and um have a sort of <laughs> a wise word or a pastoral word for two thousand people. So really I've got a mega church, that's how I think of it. And my sort of forty or fifty that I see Sunday by Sunday they're, they're, they're like my, um, they're like Jesus, seventy maybe, and uh, and then there's the twelve. Anyway, that's just thoughts I've had out loud. Uh, but I think Tim Keller had a, a piece on the Gospel Coalition that I read just recently, saying that every, well not every, but he was saying it it would be a good idea for ministers to do a rural placement. And he was thinking about the American context, but to take a job where you do everything. So I do um, seniors ministry, hospital visiting, kids club. Youth group preaching pastoral counselling, you know, I run the parish council um and being by virtue of the the history of the Church of England on norfolk Island and 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 being a Norfolk island is more like America than Australia, and that the the church and the Christian story are part of its foundation story. the reason that um the pit canners were pardoned when they were they were the bounty mutineers um is because they'd found Christ and uh, visiting whalers and then later the military ships that came to Pitcairn had mercy on them because they were this sort of little Edenic or thought to be Christian community um, that had, um, it, it fascinated the world that this community had sort of found Christ away from the evils of society and so Norfolk was, um, their move to Norfolk was sponsored by Queen Elizabeth herself and um, the then pastor or the first chaplain of the Church of England was a man called George Hun Nobs, and he was taken to London to be ordained. And uh, I think he had some connections with the Clapham sect, actually, the, the um, evangelicals in London. But so it, it, there's, it's like there's an establishment church. There's an establishment Christian story. Um, we're celebrating this week on the island Thanksgiving Day, which is a public holiday here, and we'll have like stacks of hundreds of our nominals in church um, and they all have family pews and ties to these original settlers that all came as as Christians and so um, yeah it, so, so it's interesting so there's this um, old time uh, respect isn't the word but maybe it's getting close to it um, deference or or something to the chaplain you know you didn't have to go too far back on norfolk island to when they were doffing their hats in the street um to the chaplain it's not like that now Um, so it's a very public role um, and i'm i'm sought out for all kinds of strange jobs from opening art galleries by saying prayers of blessings or uh, the Norfolk Island has a council of elders and, and, I'm, I've been asked to do their commissioning service. When I, st- when I got here before the Australian, um, reform, the local school to the takeover, uh, there was still a local parliament with the power to make and enforce laws here, a nine, uh, member legislative assembly. And I was opening, um, the assembly with prayer, uh, at each sitting in full robes. And so I had, I've got that kind of public civic role as well so that's and with that comes a connection with um more politicians than i've ever met in my life which is really interesting as well and so i get asked to do stuff for the commonwealth and i've facilitated you know think tanks and all kinds of weird stuff yeah
2: i don't know if uh, this may be a, bit, a slightly trickier question can you can you think of a time since you've been there in the last six years where you've noticed the gospel the preaching of the gospel which is at the heart of what it means to be in ministry, can you think of a time when that's actually sort of made an impact in the lives of people, particularly if it sounds like there, I get a sense that there's sort of a, a view of the church, which is one of just establishment. It's always been there. It's there when we need it. And if we need it, we'll call on it in a sense. Um, but the preaching of the gospel demands more than just whenever I need it, I can call on it, right? So can you maybe think of a time where the preaching of the gospel sort of just in your experience has made an impact?
1: Last Sunday, I got to baptize two people and then, uh, another one came forward and said, Hey, I've already been baptized. I just got an email today. Um, can you confirm me? I was like, okay. <laughs> but actually, so what Norfolk Island had before, um, we came, it, it, it has had full-time ministry for, for, for many, many years, but it, it had gone to local ministry. And with local ministry, you, you, you get retired men typically coming preaching their best ofs. Um, so the congregation would have heard my favourite sermons from Matthew um umpteen times, you know, in the five years before I came. So since I've been here, in terms of preaching the gospel, um, they've had expository preaching. Uh, they've had, uh, I suppose, uh, one of the things that I've, in terms of gospel ministry that I've put my attention into, in terms of the mission for the island, is um, I've started and maintained a kids club and a, a youth group with help, where it's explicitly to gospel the next generation. Um, but I think I think probably the main, or what I'm proudest about, is something that I haven't really done myself. Um, but it's just preaching through books of the Bible and giving them the whole counsel of God, uh, showing how, as they say on the Bible Project, the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, preaching, I've, we've done, we've just done Song of Songs, and I speculated, I don't think this has ever been taught on Norfolk Island, ever, in 200 years. Um, and here we are having Song of Songs. So, uh, and that, that's not That's not to say I appreciate any of this well or did any of this well, but I think just being here and having time and 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 being long term and and we've dug in and we've been here now close to six years, having the chance to just preach and teach and um, share our lives and have others share their lives with us um, we're doing we're doing that deep gospel ministry. Um, Others have come and so take the youth group for example, others have come and tried to start youth groups but since I've been here we've had a youth group open for six years which means six years of catechesis for young people um, where where we're, we're preaching the gospel and we're hoping that that, um, that generation that's been through, we may not get to see that because it's pretty brutal um, as in the, the secular um, as it is everywhere but in a, in a small community, the secular kind of um, uh, attacks on our on our kids that we're that we're gospeling is uh, is pretty brutal. So we might not see that fruit, but um, we trust that just that long term uh, work will have fruit.
0: It's been so awesome, Dave, hearing from you, hearing how ministry is going over there. It's been ages since. I've really seen you face-to-face, but it sounds as though God is really blessing your work through the gospel, which is just so joyous to hear of. Do you have any final piece of wisdom or advice that you would give to someone who's listening in terms of they're thinking about going into ministry down the track? When you look back on your life, what, what's the sort of final gold nugget of wisdom that you would have for that person? Um.
1: It's it's my mother's advice. <laughs> I, just think, I just think combined <laughs> with those thoughts, thoughts that I had age twenty two or twenty three, if 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 Jesus is Lord, um, then what better thing could you be doing? If if He's coming back, uh, what better work could you be involved in than to prepare the way and and to uh, to preach the good news and call people to repentance. Um, to to equip God's people for works of service. If if He is who He says He is, then to me uh, the implications abound.
0: Well, Dave. Amen.
2: Yeah, Dave. Thank you very much for being with us uh, on this episode of the Aspire Podcast. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks, it's great to uh, be able to chat with you from uh, you know nearly two thousand kilometers away. And um, we wish you and Christopher and family all the best for the ministry um, on Norfolk Island in the current and hopefully, God willing, future seasons. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, it was great um, hearing from Dave. Uh, as he's ministering out there on mm. Norfolk Island. And Aaron, I guess it must be just lovely to hear from him as um, you obviously spent a good number of years when he was your pastor at um, Manly. I guess one of the things that uh, came out in the interview, among other things, was this idea that this idea of aspiring to ministry had sort of been on Dave's mind for some time. It's almost been, what was the phrase, swirling mm. around or something like that. And it was a scene, a sort of the ministry scene was something that he'd been involved with. Have you got any sort of reflections or, I guess, resonance with that? All
0: right. Yeah, I did. And it was great hearing from him for precisely the reason you said. Just He was such a key part of me wanting to go into ministry, just seeing him do ministry. And it was actually a talk he gave at the last summer camp he ever was on before he went to Norfolk Island. so the last sort of goodbye speech. And there were a bunch of kids crying because he'd made such a big impact on the youth group because mm-hmm. the youth group went from like three kids to 50 or something. Mm-hmm. And he was, we were crying and sobbing and he and he gave this question to us. He said, look, who of you are actually going to give up doing a normal type of job yeah. to actually serve God yeah. full time? Um, and I just remember sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, yes, I actually really want to do that. Yeah. And I remember feeling so convicted yeah. and stirred by his comments. And so in that sense, I really resonated with what he said about the fact that it was swelling on the scene as a young boy. For me that was when i was probably in high school um and so when uh, that was that was a really convicting moment and from then i think that aspiration continued to grow but that was definitely a a key way resonated let me just
2: pick up on that let's have a bit of a chat about that it's interesting that you use the language of convicted because Mm. it's interesting that sometimes we talk about this language of calling right do i feel Mm. called but i think clearly there's this a biblical difference between calling and the language of conviction. And it sounds like that Mm -hmm. in that moment, if I may, in terms of your experience, it wasn't as if you necessarily felt called to use the sort of biblical language. But Mm -hmm. you clearly were convicted that what he was saying was ringing true in your desires and your aspirations. Mm -hmm. And
0: would that would that be a fair observation just from as you read, I think that is fair. I think that is fair. And I think over time, the conviction became clearer and clearer yeah. and clearer. Yeah. And so I think what happened with me was because the conviction became, became clearer, it sort of in some sense morphed into a quote unquote calling, mm. but maybe that is different to the calling language that we see in the Bible, yeah. at least in most instances, like, of course, Paul is called to be an apostle, yeah. but maybe that's a unique circumstance. But so I think that's the case for me. It. It started then as a conviction, but then because it just, I couldn't shake it. I think this is something I've experienced in my life growing up. The more I just started to make life decisions, I just couldn't shake this desire to want to preach God's word, to want to lead his people. It was just irresistible. I think Spurgeon says, look, if you can do anything else apart from ministry, just do that. But if you can only do ministry, then you're, quote, unquote, called to ministry. That's right. So I think there's something in that definitely for me I just I couldn't check so it was a deep conviction but yeah I like that distinguished that that distinction I think that might be helpful yeah I guess the
2: other thing that struck me um as we heard his story was clearly if you like the um I'm not quite sure if I could phrase it more almost more eloquently than he did right this tension between his in-laws as he sought to you know propose to Crystal and what his in-laws desired Mm -hmm. and the conversation he had with I think it was his mum right from memory who yep his mum Look, who he, in a sense who are you going to please? Are you are you going to please Jesus on that last day, or do you want to please your potential father-in-law? Um,
0: which was similar to Dave saying to me on that last summer camp, "Hey, who are you going to give up You know, job?" So the sense in which God works through people, yeah. challenging us yep. to consider what it would mean to go into ministry.
2: And I guess again, it's counting the cost, right? It's there was a costliness. Dave having that conversation with his potential father-in-law to say actually I'm not gonna go the way you want me to but I really would still love to marry your daughter Uh, but this is the path that I'm choosing to take that's costly right because you're putting it all on the line Mm -hmm. Um, the father-in-law could have just said not not happening or might not have spoken to him at all or might have so there's, there's a costliness to making the commitment to follow Jesus in in many areas of life, but I think particularly there's a costliness about committing to be a gospel worker in God's harvest field in a more full-time capacity or in a financially dependent capacity or, um,
0: yeah, And it's so hard finding family, well, it depends on who you are, but it can be hard for people to find support, family support, support from a spouse, to want to go into it. Yeah. And I think that is a big issue for people. They're, they're trying to find someone to date who actually wants to go into ministry with them because that often is a part of who you date, right? And I think it's, didn't re, we didn't really talk about it with Dave, but it was sort of on the radar of our conversation, the fact that Crystal wanted to do it, but her parents didn't want um, her to do it. So another thing, Paddy, that we heard from Dave was the role of the ministry trainee, trainee apprenticeship that he did yeah. down south, right? Yeah. Um, that seemed to be a, re- a really encouraging th- thing for him to inspire him to want to do ministry, yep. even though it was a bit unorthodox he spoke about. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Obviously, Paddy, you're a big advocate of ministry trainee apprenticeships. Yep. Why should people do one before they go into ministry?
2: Well, I, I think there's all sorts of upsides to it, right? Um, Hmm. There's lots of upsides, uh, a couple of them. Uh, The first one is if you undertake a two year ministry apprenticeship or traineeship, and you get to the end, and you're then convicted that full time ministry is not for you, both personally, and if your coach or trainer gives you that advice after having watched you and coached you for two years, that is not a failure. Some people think that's a failure, right? Whereas actually that's a beautiful success because you will have learnt all sorts of things in your apprenticeship that you'll be able to serve the local church with for however many decades the Lord gives you. But what you've also done is you've also reached a point in your own Christian maturity where you've realized that you're not suitable for whatever reason. There may be a a, a character issue that needs more time to work on. There may be a skill issue that, um, it can't be resolved, and in which case, actually, the most loving thing for the sake of future generations of local churches is that you don't then pursue vocational ministry. And so I have met with a number of
0: so, yep. so would you say suitability then is a key part of why people do ministry apprenticeships to figure out are they suitable? Yeah. Is this actually for them? Yeah, absolutely. Do they enjoy doing it? Yeah. Because they may have been doing volunteering, yeah. but actually they haven't been serving Monday to Friday for God's people and that's different to just serving a youth group and yet there are some people that do heaps and heaps of ministry I think there's so much there's so much um, reward to doing ministry training apprenticeship but here's my situation I don't want to be narcissistic on this podcast but we want to talk about it because it allows us to be practical right do you think some people already do heaps of ministry and so in a sense already have a taste for ministry so if you look at my own situation yeah talks at youth group, talks at study camps and directing camps. But sure, I haven't done Monday to Friday ministry, but I feel like I have such a taste that I really want to go into it. So speak to my situation. Like why should I, someone who does a lot, still do one?
2: Okay, so live on the
0: podcast, (laughs) hear me
2: try and persuade Aaron to come and do an apprenticeship. That's what it feels
0: like you've set me up for, brother. But anyway, This is what they listen for. Okay,
2: a couple of things to say. I I think there's a a continuum of people who do voluntary ministry, so um, who, who end up in formal ministry. So I remember when I went to Bible college, um, some of the people who turned up in my year in first year at college had done what I would call a minimal amount of voluntary ministry. And by that, I'm not being pejorative. I'm just actually saying when you sort of look at the voluntary ministry they'd been doing uh, for the previous four to five years, they'd been leading a home group. And that's really fantastic, leading a home group. But Now they've decided to step into ministry at the other end of the continuum is you get people who had done two years full time ministry apprenticeships, having also done lots and lots of voluntary ministry before that. All I'm saying is there's just a a very big continuum of people. And Mm -hmm. dare I say, Aaron, you're probably someone just because we're using you as an example, who's more at the I'm doing lots more voluntary ministry, partly because you've weighed the cost of wanting to spend more of your week committing to voluntary ministry than a lot of other people. So on one hand, you're a pretty easy case, but on one hand, it's a bit of an unfair case for our listeners, right? Sure. And part of the reason why you're a good case, though, is because I just want to say to people, look, if you're not really that keen to do lots of voluntary ministry, why do you think you'll be mm. keen to do ministry as a profession? Mm. What, what, what is then the reason as to why you want to do ministry? Is it that in your voluntary ministry, you're not seen very much and you think, actually, I want to be known as the person up the front, so I'm going to actually do it full time because then everyone will see mm. me up the front. Is it that um, you just feel like I'm a bit stuck only leading home group, but I really just can't do preaching? So once I'm doing voluntary ministry, then I'll be able to preach. Like there's, I think there's a, a genuine question that needs to be asked as to if people are not keen to do more voluntary ministry, realising that everyone's circumstances are a little bit different, then why would there be a keenness to consider doing more vocational ministry?
0: I think it's part that's a really interesting point yeah which I, th- I hadn't really pondered that much the fact that it, it analyzes your own motivations yeah yeah like whether because are we picking other things remember
2: from what Dave was telling us he was already doing quite a lot of voluntary ministry and it, um, I mean he had gone and got some work but he was doing lots and lots of voluntary ministry already and so it almost seemed I don't think he used the word natural or second nature to then step up and do that in an apprenticeship format Full time to two for two years.
0: Like, I guess. So, here's a question yeah. for you, Patty. If I can cut you off, which is rather rude, but I've got a burning question. I yeah, have to ask, ask, the, ask the burning Patty. question. So, let's just say I'm out there, I'm convinced yep. I need to do a ministry or training apprenticeship. Which one should I do? Right? Because I've got AFES, I've got local church, I've got music ministry, I've got um, there's different stuff with CPX or sure. um, Bible Society. Like, how do you choose which internship to do? Oh, look, great question, genuine question, I mean, by the way. Yeah, I mean, one <laughs> of the
2: things when I, um, um, when I must admit, when I was going through a, as a uni as an undergrad uni student, there were not nearly, if you like, as many variations of the ministry apprenticeship. It was broadly, but with some variation, it was broadly you do ministry apprenticeships in a church, or you do it on a university campus. They were broadly the two. So the decision really was which which one do I want to do? Now there seems to be a whole range of things, right? And on one hand, I think that's because various Christian ministries have tried to differentiate themselves a little bit more and and make it attractive to do an apprenticeship. I I think one of the things that you want to, I think, consider is what is one of the key values of doing an apprenticeship? One of the key values is being given as many opportunities as you can to be able to teach the Bible to people day in, day out, both in in a range of contexts and lots of different settings. So lots of opportunities to meet one-to-one with people and work hard at doing good one-to-one ministry. Lots of opportunities to gather smaller groups of people, like small group Bible studies, uh, to be developing the skill and the ability to teach the word in a small group setting. Opportunities as they arise in larger gatherings, maybe maybe the occasional preaching and, and teaching, although I do think uh, there's value in doing formal training because I think that really beds down your theological framework before uh, spending too much time on training to be preachers. So I, I think, Um, that's one of the things to consider. What what apprenticeship will give me lots of time with people in the Bible? And so that's one of the first things to think about, which is why partly, and remember, I'm a bit biased, right? That's why I've chosen to keep (laughs) keep working with uni students, as you would well know. One of the really real upsides of a campus-based traineeship at universities is it gives you lots and lots of opportunities to teach the Bible to people because there's lots of students around. So that's the first thing. Second thing to consider is where will I get good opportunities to engage with non-Christians to both test um, and develop as a a pastor teacher, but also as an evangelist, both a personal evangelist Mm. maybe a public evangelist. And I think partly here, the answer to this is, well, anywhere can give you lots and lots of opportunities. So if you decided to do an apprenticeship in a retirement village, lots and lots of opportunities go into evangelism, because all the people are there in the retirement village, right? Go and do it on a university campus. Tens of thousands of students there. Go and do it in a parish, in a church. I take it you just have to walk out of the church, turn left, walk down the road. And the first couple of houses that you walk past, assuming you walk past the minister's place, right? Go past that place, go to the next <laughs> Lots and lots of non christians So in theory, almost anywhere will give you lots of opportunities to mm. engage non-Christians with the gospel. The question to ask is, has the program been designed to do that? Because some people say, well, we'll give you one hour of walk up or we'll give you one hour of this, right? Whereas I want to keep pushing back and saying, no, actually try and give good opportunities to really develop in that skill of evangelism. So I think lots of time Mm. to try and read the Bible with people doing evangelism. And I think the third thing is consider really carefully whether or not the the training centre, be it a church or a campus, has actually designed a program that helps you get trained not just do the work of ministry. So is there opportunity in the weekly program of the apprentice to pause and reflect on what's been going on, to get some feedback from a coach or a trainer, to then be given the opportunity to do that ministry again, to be observed in doing the ministry, and to then try a particular and to be then try different areas of ministry. So I think part of what's connected in that is be trained by people who know you. Um, because there's an established relationship. I think that's that's a good thing to do. Um, but I think uh, the key thing, though, is the training mindset that the ministry centre should have. So I think there's a couple of things.
0: The listeners can't say this, but I'm profusely nodding my head as Patty's saying these things. And particularly on that final point to do with coaching, because I feel as though that's a real area whereby not every ministry apprenticeship is really great at. Yeah. Mind you, I haven't really done one, so I don't know for sure. But what I, from what I can see from afar, I feel as though that one-on-one coaching is just so valuable. Yep. And yet, not everyone in ministry seems to know how to do that. Fair enough. It's yep. not taught at any Bible yep, college. It's yep. different to that. And yet, there's such value in having that real direct yeah. mentorship, yeah. direct discipleship, direct coaching. So, you- not just a passive setting a model or example yep. for your, your apprenticeship.
2: So I think one of the other things
0: to say is one of
2: the other values uh, that I think the training centre or the training team, whatever you want to call it, should try and uphold is modelling ministry to their apprentices. The ministry apprentices should be able to watch those who are more experienced and more practised and watch how they do ministry because ministry is often caught, not just taught, right? It's being modelled. And I think there are certain situations where um I've talked to some potential ministry apprentices who say, well, I've decided to go and train at a church rather than with you on campus because I feel like my minister knows me better. But then when I catch up with them down the track and I say, well, how often do you meet with the minister? And they say, oh, look, only maybe once a month or something like that. So I think what's gone on there is there's been a little bit of a mindset that said, Mm. I presume my minister will know me best, therefore they will give me really good intentional coaching. Now, one of the things we, for example, try and do, Um, at Sydney Uni and on other campuses, is a really intentional, we meet with the apprentices weekly for at least an hour, Mm. sometimes even more, right? And we will do that with people, one guy who I've known for five or six years before doing the apprenticeship, someone else who worked on my little team, he had not been through our campus ministry, we will still meet regularly and weekly. So do you see that's the training mindset that says, even if we know you really, really well, or even if you're not really known, we will commit to knowing you and you feeling known and being known by your trainer because we think that's actually a really good way of doing the coaching.
0: Paddy, it's been so great to talk about Dave and his story. Again, I was super, super encouraged by him. He's also been a huge impact on on my desire to want to go into ministry. So. Thanks for your reflections. Oh, that's okay. And I guess
2: time will tell to see if I was persuasive enough in that conversation <laughs> and in the others that we'll have to try and persuade you. you.
0: It's been great. One chat. of many. It's great that everyone could hear off on that. Yeah, that was awesome. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Aspire podcast. So next week, we have Shem Jevaratnam, a lawyer now looking to pursue theological studies. See you then.